Hello and welcome to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. My name is Bernardo Mite and with me as always is... Andrew Oak. Alright, and today, we it's a very cold day over here in Tennessee. It's a little colder, I guess. It's, it's a little cool in Baton Rouge, isn't it? <laughs> oh yeah, Baton Rouge right now is uh, 42, around 42 or so uh, Fahrenheit, which is, is pleasant, you know? Pleasant. Nice. This tropical place that we have down here in Louisiana. <laughs> yeah, and over here I'm freezing in Tennessee. All right. Yeah, they they canceled my alma mater last night for. Uh, I mean, they canceled classes today in Cleveland, Mississippi. Oh yeah. Uh, Delta State. Yeah, they actually canceled um, where I teach in Walter State. They canceled the last three days because it it's been so cold. They saw a snowflake fall, so they had to. They had to cancel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. So, uh, welcome to a symphonic podcast. This is not the weather podcast. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and today we're going to be talking about Gustav Holst and his um, composition, The Planets. So, uh, Gustav Holst, he was born on uh, September 21st of 1874 in um, Cheltenham, England. Uh, and he was the first of two children to Adolf and Clara von Holst. Uh, his father, Adolf, was an accomplished pianist who taught piano and practiced many hours during the day, much of much to the neglect uh, of his wife, Clara, and their two children. Uh, Adolf's family was of Swedish origin. Uh, one of his ancestors served as the court composer in Russia until he fell out of favor and exiled to Germany. Um, soon after, the family migrated to England, um, and Holst's mother, uh, Clara, was a piano student to Adolf when uh, they first met. Um, Clara's great-great-grandmother was from Spain, uh, where she had been an actress. Um, Clara, Clara was sweet, gentle, and unassuming, but she was not very strong. She died soon after the birth of her second child, when Gustav was only eight. <clears throat> uh, Adolf's, Adolf's sister, Nina, uh, was brought in to look after the children, but unfortunately she too was distracted by the piano. Um, and in her in her youth, uh, Nina had tried to follow the path of Liszt, being a, an accomplished piano player. So we can see that the family here of of Holst has been very artistic uh, through the ages. They wanted to make their mark on the world, mm -hmm. musical prowess. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said for that, I suppose. Uh, so Gustav, the the wee little man, Gustav was an oversensitive and somewhat miserable child. Um, he was. He did not have a robust uh, body. His eyes were weak, but no one didn't. No one really knew that he needed glasses, so he never didn't get them too much later. Uh, speaking of his glasses, I'm sure you've probably seen them. The, the, these tiny little. Yeah. Uh, I think they're just pince nez. Uh, those things that go on your nose, like Morpheus from the Matrix. <laughs> we really need to bring that back. I I love it. Um, his chest uh, was also weak, and again, no one bothered very much with his asthma problem. Um, Whenever he climbed stairs, he had to rest. Uh, in his youth, Gustav hated practicing the violin, but enjoyed the piano, which he began to practice as soon as his fingers could reach the uh, keyboard. Uh, so, uh, in 1885, Adolf, Adolf uh, Gustav's father, married another one of his students, Mary Thorley Stone, and Gustav was sent to Cheltenham Grammar School. Uh, his father was determined to make young Gustav a good pianist, but even in his youth, Holst was troubled with neuritis in his hands. Uh, he was a sickly, sickly man. Mm -hmm. uh, boy, I should say at that point. Still mm -hmm. very young. Uh, that made his long hours of practice a severe strain. Uh, but as he grew older, uh, Gustav tried his hand at composition. But he failed to gain scholarships to the Royal College of Music and various other colleges in London. This man uh, did not have a 
a running start. That's right. Uh, with his uh, musical anything. I mean, he, that's he right. Too generally too weak to make music and. Uh, apparently not good enough at composing at first to warrant getting into these colleges, or maybe his music just wasn't good. Yeah, stood well. and he eventually had to like learn how to play trombone and all, and all of that, which we're gonna we're gonna talk about. <laughs> so uh, Holtz obtained his first professional engagement in 1893, uh, where he was where he served as an organist at Wick Risington, which is a small village in Cotslow. Cotswold, sorry. Cotswold. Cotswold. <laughs> uh, soon afterward, he also became organist and choir master of the Choral Society at uh, Borton on the Water. These early experiences helped the young composer grow in his understanding of the workings of a choir. Choral music and the choral tradition in England would remain important throughout the rest of Holst's life. So yeah, Holst in 1892 composed a two-act operetta by the name of Lansdowne Castle. He was inspired by the music of um, Arthur Sullivan from Gilbert and Sullivan fame. Mm -hmm. uh, Sullivan didn't just write operettas or these these cute little things that people enjoyed and mm -hmm. you know, these comedic works. He actually also wrote plenty of symphonic literature. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's an overture that's really common that that is played sometimes of his. Um, but yeah, so he was inspired by Arthur Sullivan, Sir Arthur Sullivan, around 1892 to write uh, this two-act operetta, which was called Lansdowne Castle. Uh, this was produced at the Cheltenham Corn Exchange the following year. Although the music uh, was, um, uh, was very much influenced by Sullivan, the performance was a success uh, with the critics and the audience. Adolf was sufficiently impressed to borrow money to send Gustav to the Royal College of Music under regular admission. Yeah, that is, not with a scholarship. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's fine, you know, looks like he was able to make a good enough impression by writing a, a corny little thing. Yeah. <laughs> to, to get in the school under just regularly paying for it. Yeah. So uh, at, when he was in college, uh, Hall studied composition with Charles Stanford. And although he often disagreed with Stanford's opinions, Hall was always grateful to him, especially for teaching him how to become his own critic. Um, a year before attending the Royal College of Music, uh, Gustav heard uh, Richard Wagner's uh, Göttingdämmerung, right? uh, which is the last opera from the Ring Cycle, uh, under Gustav's Mahler at the, at the uh, Covent Garden. Um, like we said last week, Mahler was a, an accomplished uh, conductor. Uh, so, um, Holtz was overwhelmed by the lush uh, sonorities that he heard and uh, also reinforced by the friendship of a fellow student uh, at the college, uh, Fritz Hart, Gustav became an ardent Wagner enthusiast. Uh, one time, after hearing Tristan and Isolde in the gallery, he walked all night through the streets of London. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just gotta keep going after you... After you listen to some Wagner. <laughs> I mean, I'm... Police uh, officers never quite understand that excuse when you're speeding. Like, look, you don't understand. <laughs> I just listened to uh, the whole ring cycle. <laughs> this is big. This is important. Uh, so another overwhelming experience was hearing the Bach Mass in B minor uh, at the Three Choirs Festival in Worcester in 1893, uh, though I've always preferred to call it the D major Mass because it's only B minor a couple times. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> mostly, it's a happy Mass. Well... Yeah, all brooding B minory. Uh, it was one of the few memorable musical events in his young life that far. Uh, the the cramping neuritis in his right hand was perpetually defeating him as a keyboardist. Uh, prolonged practice was impossible, and he was forced to res to realize that he could not keep up with his technique any longer. Uh, so he started to, um, instead of doing a piano, he decided to take up the trombone. 
Uh, this would allow him to play in orchestras and provide him with an income, so he was able to make music just simply by uh, blowing, you know, buzzing his lips into a machine that, you know, they slid with his arms, which to me is a lot more work. Than, oh, yeah. But I guess it's less handy, more just army. <laughs> yeah, army. But, uh, <laughs> That's where, that's, that's where Napoleon keeps his armies in his sleeves. Uh, it would allow him to play in orchestras and provide him with an income. Uh, also, the experience would be useful to him as a composer because he was, uh, I, I think a lot of trombonists are well aware of his uh, output, his orchestral output, because it does tend to favor trombone. the trombone section quite yeah. often. I think, uh, yeah, I, th I think Holtz just wanted to be really loud and he couldn't with his, with his fingers in the piano. So he just wanted to, so he decided to do the trombone. <laughs> Living vicariously through a low brass instrument. <laughs> uh, perhaps he also thought that playing the trombone would even help to strengthen his chest and lungs, you know, mm -hmm. to having to take a deep breath and, and push it out at a slow, regular rate. Probably would help that whole asthmatic problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, the two composers in a row, and both named Gustav, right? Gustav Mahler and Gustav Holz, that have these, all these. Um, all these health problems. <laughs> so what have we learned about the name Gustav? Gustav, yeah, don't, don't give it to your child. <laughs> Just strike it out of the baby name books. <laughs> so as a student, uh, Gustav Holz was frugal. Uh, he never smoked nor drank. Uh, since leaving home, he had also become a strict vegetarian. But vegetarianism was not encouraged in his cheap lodgings in, 1890, in the 1890s. Uh, since he was never given a completely nourished meal, his eyes became very weak and his hand remained in constant pain. Uh, yet despite all the physical problems and his extremely shy and solitary nature, he was already showing an absorbing interest um, in other people. Mm. He hated conventionality and rejoiced in ideas he found fantastic or humorous. Uh, he, he enjoyed a good laugh as well. <laughs> Who he did not enjoy conventionality. Yeah. You know, I, I understand that he didn't give um, autographs. Uh -huh. uh, he, he had a little card that he would hand out that said, I do not give autographs. <laughs> and he just handed it to them as a souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. So Gustav Holz was also thin and anemic, uh, yet his movements were quick and he walked in long energetic strides. Uh, looking for, way, for ways to remain strong, Holz would walk or, or, or cycle, uh, much of the way home uh, to uh, Sheltenham from the college. Uh, he must have looked like an odd figure with his trombone strapped over his back. <laughs> I don't even notice that here at the music school. I mean, <laughs> you see people with trombones in the backs all, all the time. Uh -huh. uh, in 1895, Holst was surprised to learn that he had won an open scholarship for composition. This news was a relief as he was then able to continue his studies at the Royal College of Music after money from home became scarce. He augmented his college grant of 30 pounds by playing trombone on the pier at Brighton uh, and other resorts during the summer holidays. Uh, it was soon after accepting the scholarship for the Royal College of Music that Holst wrote his first opera. Under the guidance of his composition professor, Charles Villiers of Stanford, uh, Holst set to music a libretto written by Fritz Hart, one of his, you know, his old friend, uh, based on a card game episode in Beau Brummel. Uh, Beau Brummel, of course, being the, the famous dandy. Mm -hmm. The man who got the whole don't wear brown shoes after dark mm -hmm. rule going. Uh, he called it the Revoke and gave it his Opus 1. Uh, Stanford was very enthusiastic about the piece and almost had it staged at the Opera Comique in Paris where one of his own operas was being performed, but the Revoke had never ha has never had a public performance, mm -hmm. as far as I'm aware. Yep. Um, in the autumn of 1895, uh, Gustav met, met Rolf von Williams, 
who we've talked about before, um, for the first time. Um, it was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. It was also the beginning of their habit of playing their compositions to each other while they were still working on them. Um, sometimes they would walk along uh, Chiswick Mall or by the river with other col college friends while discussing uh, the poetry of Walt Whitman or the socialist works of um, William Morris. Holst joined the Hammersmith uh, Socialist Club and listened to Bernard, Bernard Shaw's lectures. Uh, he conducted the Hammersmith Socialist Choir at William Morris House in Hammersmith Mall. Uh, uh, and he fell in love with his youngest soprano. Uh, her name was Isabel Harrison. Uh, she was a pretty blue-eyed blonde who persuaded him to eat uh, properly, shave his beard, and improve the way he dressed. Yeah, I mean, that, you can always tell when somebody has a, has a love uh -huh. when they start suddenly dressing nicer. <laughs> um, one of Gustav Holst's early student works dating from 1897 was The Winter Idol. Uh, the influence of Wagner, Mendelssohn, and Grieg is, is very obvious in this work. Uh, by now he was playing trombone in theater orchestras and organ at several London churches, so he was always around this kind of music. Uh, in the autumn of 1898, uh, the Carl Rosa Opera Company offered him an appointment as first trombone, <laughs> and so he regretfully left the Royal College of Music. Now, Carl Rosa holds taught soloists in unfamiliar repertoire. By playing trombone in the orchestra, he came to know an orchestra from the inside, which was, of course, valuable training for a composer, not just some pianist who heard an orchestra once or twice and gave it a shot. Mm -hmm. um, and this would help him to internally hear the orchestration of a work while composing it, which is, is of course, uh, quite valuable yes. skill to have when you're orchestrating. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then it was in 1895 that Holz first became interested in Hindu philosophy and Sanskrit literature. His immediate impulse was to set some hymns to the, uh, from the Rig Veda, uh, the most important of the Hindu scriptures, um, to music. Uh, he found the English version, which was not very, translated very well, um, so Holtz decided to learn Sanskrit so that he could translate the words to his own satisfaction. And in doing so, he opened an entirely new world for himself. Yeah, he was obsessed with those... Uh those Sanskrit works, and he was fascinated by, by Vedic literature and the, the, the Rig Veda. Mm -hmm. um, well, yeah, uh, he, in fact, uh, LSU just did uh, his, the women's choir here just did his, um, some of his Rig Veda uh, songs not long ago. Really? So Holst began work in an opera, uh, an opera called Sita, in 1899. It's based in the Hindu epic Ramayana. He worked on it on and off until 1906. Although it was never performed in his lifetime, he learned a great deal from it. His musical style was becoming more direct. In 1900, Holst wrote his uh, Cotswold Symphony, and in it was an elegy written in memory of William Morris, another important um, figure in that time. Uh, he also completed his uh, Ave Maria, which uh, was his first published piece, the A.V. Maria. In <laughs> 1903, he also wrote a symphonic poem called uh, Indra, or Indra, which just means, um, which is... Um, a vivid portrait of the god Indra and his battle with uh, with the drought. You know, Indra is a very well known source of uh, Hindu philosophy. I ask, teach. Anyway, uh, yet before he completed the evocative Indra, Gustav married Isobel in 1901. Their first home was in Shepherd's Bush. Uh, so uh, they they lived. Uh, they started off their happy little life, even though Gustav. 
does not live for a terribly long time. Yeah. Uh, part of having that sickliness sort of mm -hmm. not a good thing. Yeah. So, so um, Gustav came into a small inheritance when his father died, so he and Isabel went to Berlin for a short holiday. Uh, he returned to London, vowing to give up the trombone and concentrate on composing. Um, so, so, all it takes is a trip to Germany and you're, you're done with trombone forever. <laughs> You know, it could have just been Isabel. We can't just. That's true. That's true too. <laughs> I hate. Generally, it. when you, when you, when you get a new uh, partner and you really get into her, you just have to make a few sacrifices here and there, and maybe the trombone was one of them. It was too it's loud for her. <laughs> it's a kind of a loud instrument, especially in English homes. Those little wooden yeah. buildings, the wallpaper. <laughs> So, uh, like Edward Elgar before him, Holst was at first destined to be disappointed. Uh, he wrote many good songs, uh, but they were constantly refused by publisher after publisher. His wife copied his music and also made clothes for her friends to help make ends meet. Just as Gustav's resolution was wavering, he was asked to substitute for the singing teacher at James Allen's school in Dulwich. Uh, Von Williams played a role in getting him this job. Um, and so Hall's uh, career as a gifted teacher had just begun. That's true. He did have a lot of experience there as a, as a teacher in his lifetime. So in 1905, uh, Holst was appointed the director of music at St. Paul's Girls' School in Hammersmith. It was also the year he was asked to conduct his new large-scale piece for soprano and orchestra called The Mystic Trumpeter over at Queen's Hall. Uh, the Mystic Trumpeter, based on poetry by Walt Whitman, shows, a, shows strong influences of Wagner. Um, uh, this was one of the last pieces Holst wrote that would be influenced in such a way. He was becoming, becoming more and more interested in English folk song in his life, so he started seeing a lot more works uh, that he publishes that are based in English folk song. Uh, the simplicity and economy of the tunes were very appealing to him, uh, and it was the impact and influence of folk song that sort of uh, finally started getting the, the Wagner... Um, mm -hmm. Wagner out of them. I mean, uh, a lot of people have trouble distinguishing by ear between Wagner and um, between like Mahler and Elgar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there, there's there's a lot mm -hmm. of German influence when we were trying to restart mm -hmm. uh, musical life in England. I mean, for years Germany, uh, the Germans looked at England. They called it the uh, uh, what is it? The Land ohne ohne Musik, the the country without music. Yeah. For years, I mean, there's it's so there are not a whole lot of people who are born native English composers between yeah. Purcell yeah. and um, Elgar, Elgar yeah. Britain. You know. uh, but yeah, he's you know he 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 was uh, finally starting to take some nationalistic pride there and, and developing his own style. Mm -hmm. So by 1907, Holst had finished the music for Sita and was beginning work on the first group of choral hymns from the Rig Veda. He also composed his Somerset Rhapsody in that year. Uh, composing became easier now that they had a small house in Richmond. Uh, on the weekends, they escaped to a small town room cottage in, on the remote Isle of Sheppey. Uh, this was a welcome solitude for them. I think that's how you say it, Sheppey. Sheppey? Yeah, I think so, Sheppey. <laughs> they, they escaped in this happy little cottage. Yeah. Uh, nice little place away from home. Uh, so Holst was appointed the music director at uh, Morley College for working men and women. Now we're getting to some real, real famous colleges here. Uh, I'm being facetious. Uh, previously, they had never bothered so much, uh, bothered much about music. There, they were more interested uh, in you know things like I don't know typing. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, music's important too. So he, he taught there. He was director of music. His exacting demands drove a lot of the students away. They were working men and women. They 
the music was not in their vocation. Uh, but then, thankfully, several new and enthusiastic students joined to turn the classes into a success. So he did. He was able to draw some uh, some interest. Mm-hmm. So in 1906, Holst suffered a setback when he failed to f- uh, win a composition competition, the Ricordi Prize, uh, with his long-labored opera Sita. Uh, it was a bitter blow. His old composition teacher, Stanford, was probably the reason the opera did not win the competition. Mm-hmm. Yep. Depression and perpetual overwork had reduced Holst to such a state that his doctor ordered him to take a holiday in a warm climate. He decided to go to Algeria and bicycle in the desert. Uh, this experience of a colorful world gave him the inspiration for his next, next major work for orchestra, which is Benny Mora. Uh, and uh, when, he, when he was first performed in England, one critic complained, quote, We do not ask for brisca dancing girls in Langham Place, unquote. And Von Williams once noted that if the piece had been premiered in Paris, it would have made Holst a household name some 10 years earlier than his success with the planets. That's right. <laughs> Man. Location, location, location. Mm-hmm. So at, at home in England again, the, uh, a reinvigorated Holst began working on another Indian opera, which he called Savitri. Uh, now this, this is uh, definitely his most well-known dramatic work, Savitri. It's fantastic. Savitri. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this was a much smaller work, only lasting a little over 30 minutes. Uh, it has something to do with, with um, it doesn't take too many forces to do. It's a very good work, it has death prominently in it. Uh, the music was written for three soloists, a small hidden chorus and a chamber orchestra. Uh, during this time, Gustav was at the height of his interest in setting Sanskrit text. Uh, so from 1908 to 1912, he wrote four sets of hymns from the Rig Veda. Uh, the Vedic hymns for voice and piano, and the large-scale work called The Cloud Messenger. Mm-hmm. So, in the summer of 1911, under the guidance of Gust- Gustav Holst, Morley College gave the first performance of Henry Purcell's The Fairy Queen since the 17th century. The full- to be fair, that was probably the first music <laughs> to be done in England, in England. really. <laughs> like Purcell, they just took a break after Purcell. They didn't do anything. A couple little pieces for coronations and things. And finally... <laughs> no. Yeah, and so this, this full score had been lost shortly after Purcell's death. Uh, Holst got permission for several of the Morley students to copy out the complete vocal and orchestral parts. This was a colossal task and there were 500 pages of manuscript and it took those inexperienced copyists uh, nearly a year to write them out in their spare time. For Holst, uh, the, the performance was probably the most exciting thing he, uh, he had yet done. Um, this and The first performance of the, the Cloud Messenger came later in 1912 and it was not a success. The failure of the performance uh, which he conducted depressed him and he went, for, and he went to Spain for a holiday. While there, uh, Cliff Fordbacks encouraged him, encouraged his growing interest in astrology, and long after the success of the planets, Holst would uh, cast horops, horoscopes to for his friends, and he called this my pet vice. <laughs> this is true. His his friend Clifford Bax was a theosophist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Clifford was the the brother of Arnold Bax, another very well known symphonic composer in England at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Clifford Bax was one of the whole three friends that helped him with his Hymn of Jesus, which is another one of those esoteric works. It's an old Gnostic uh, text mm-hmm. that was found in a library in Vienna around the turn of the century. Mm-hmm. And that, that whole set for two choirs and his Hymn of Jesus. That's two choirs and a semi-chorus. Fantastic piece of music. 
Uh, but Clifford Bax was one of those influences, one of those theosophists that got him thinking about astrology mm. and, uh, and got him thinking about stuff that's a little uh, outside of the norm in terms of <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, his mother was a Buddhist, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Mr. Holst's mother. I forget which mother he had to. Um, anyway, in 1913, an, uh, the new music wing of St. Paul's was opened and he was given the large soundproof room for his work. On weekdays, he would teach in it, but on Sundays and holidays, he spent hours composing there. The first piece he wrote there was St. Paul's Suite, which a lot of people are quite familiar yes. with. It comes up a lot on uh, in concert uh, repertory, and you hear it all the time. Yeah. Um, Very popular work. That's, that's for wind ensemble, is it? No, no it's, it's for, for orchestra, uh, string orchestra. String orchestra. Mm-hmm. I feel like it must have been something different. I, I just know I see it all the time. Yeah. Uh, it, was a, it was about this time that Holst became wildly excited over the rediscovery of English madrigal composers. Uh, his favorite was a guy by the name of Thomas Wilkes, uh, of all the Tudor composers, uh, but he also adored Byrd and Purcell. Uh, his first composition after the outbreak of the World War was a setting of Walt Whitman's dirge for two veterans. Uh, it was his comment on that year of tragedy. So Vaughn Williams also said these verses, and they were included in his Dona Nobis Pacem, <laughs> as I prefer to pronounce it. <laughs> the people that just left and entered the room, had entered and left the room, were just scoffing at my pronunciation. Pacem. Pacem, but that's, I mean, if you're going to use English, and it's an English word, you might as well pronounce it. <laughs> Dona Nobis. <laughs> Dona Nobis Pacem. Or just Dona Nobis Pacem, it's fine. Yeah. So, Holtz was also starting work on the planets at uh, this time. Some of the orchestration uh, of this composition was sketched during the long weekends at his family's country cottage in uh, at Thaxt, uh, Thaxt in Thaxted. yeah Thaxted, Thaxted, which is in Essex. <laughs> um, the church here uh, there at Thaxted was like a cathedral, and uh, it was incredibly spacious and bright inside. Host dreamt of a festival that might be held there one day. Uh, he also dreamt of bringing down his students uh, from Morley and Saint, and Saint Paul's. St. Paul's. Uh, this, dream, this dream was realized during uh, the Pentecost weekend of 1916 when there were four days of perpetual singing and playing, either uh, proper, properly arranged at the church, uh, impromptu in, very, in various houses, or in the countryside. Thus, uh, from these beginnings, the, uh, the Whitsuntide Festival became a tradition. Yeah, in, in 1917, Holst wrote the Hymn of Jesus, which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. uh, based on the Apocryphal Gospels. It's not really uh, based on the Gospel, it's uh, the work is the, the Acts of John. Mm-hmm. Uh, after, I mean, before the, the Bible had been, you know, before the Council of Nicaea had really mm-hmm. uh, put together all of these, uh, put together the Bible as we know it mm-hmm. proper, there were all these extra books mm-hmm. that were written. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of which being the well, several different kinds of acts, uh, acts according to different people. Mm-hmm. So the Acts of John is one of those uh, is where we get the hymn of Jesus from. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the hymn that Jesus apparently sang before being crucified. And when they had sung a hymn, he went out to the Mount of Olives. This is supposed to be that hymn. Mm-hmm. Uh, with its with his unusual thoroughness, Holst learned enough Greek uh, to translate the original hymn. It was in Coptic Greek. Um, it was um, found in a Viennese library by a, by a friend, mm-hmm. um, and then given to him by uh, G.R.S. Mead, another theosophist. Uh, mm-hmm. He then pondered at length over the meaning of the words so that he could maintain a spirit of the poem as much as possible. I mean, he, he, he received a lot of help from, from different people to try and create a, a work that was uh, uh, quite satisfactory for 
his interpretation as well as that of his friends of the original word. So Holst was declared unfit for active service in the Great War. He, he was depressed because he was unable to contribute to the war effort. His brother, uh, Emil, had left the New York stage to join the army, and Isabel was driving lorry loads of wounded soldiers to the hospital. Von Williams was fighting in France, and fellow musicians like George Butterworth were dying in the battlefields. It was not a pleasant time mm -hmm. to be an Englishman. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at last he got his chance uh, to have some, uh, uh, some involvement during the closing stages of the war. The YMCA offered him the post of musical organizer in their educational work among the troops in the Near East. He got rid of the fun in his name and sailed for uh, Salonika, but not before uh, Balfour Gardiner had given him a private performance of The Planets, conducted by Adrian Bolt. Yep. So, Holst arrived back home in the middle of 1919 and soon took up more teaching posts at University College and at the Royal College of Music, finally. <laughs> so, yeah. so, back in his soundproof room in St. Paul's, uh, he said Walt Whitman's Ode to Death for Chorus and Orchestra. Uh, Gustav Holst conducted the first performance of The Hymn of Jesus in 1920 and, like the planets, it was very, very successful. Uh, life was becoming easier by the end of 1922. Holst found for the first time he had earned more than 1,000 pounds in a year, uh, and, but however, uh, he was to have no more major popular success, success after that. Yeah, that was, um, him and Jesus is a good work. He does lots of things like, you know, Ives has the things happening at different times. Mm -hmm. uh, he has the same thing happen at the start of the hymn of Jesus. I mean, it's really advanced stuff, lots of mm -hmm. uh, bitonality mm -hmm. and, and really advanced stuff. So in early 1923, Holst was conducting a rehearsal at University College uh, when he slipped off the platform and fell back on his head. His body frequently gives him problems. Yeah. Uh, the concussion was fairly slight, but it happened at an unfortunate time when Holst was already feeling depressed and overworked. So the damage was more deadly than he could realize at the time, and it was many years before he rediscovered, for he, before he recovered from the after effects of the accident. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is in 1923, and he dies in 37. Mm -hmm. And so he doesn't have too much, terribly longer. But, yeah. uh, but at the time, Holst seemed to recover quickly from his head injury, and he accepted an invitation to go to America to conduct a music festival at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Uh, during the trip, he scored his fugal concerto for flute, oboe, and strings. So he was, he was beginning to become even more productive. Yeah. Uh, and while he was in America, uh, his, recent, his recent opera, The Perfect Fool, was produced by the British National Opera. Although its ballet music was enjoyed, the opera failed because the storyline was too enigmatic. Several people in the audience demanded their money back. Uh, Hulse was beginning to lose touch with his audience. Uh, meanwhile, in America, he was basking in adulation. Uh, back in England, he received tremendous ovation after a performance of The Planets, but it brought him no joy. Uh, his nerves were very bad and he was finding it impossible to sleep at night. By the end of the term, uh, he was on the verge of a serious nervous breakdown. breakdown. Uh, then, an anonymous rich man gave him several hundred pounds uh, so that he might have more time for composing. So he decided at that point to give up all of his teaching for three months. He retired to Faxted, spending only one day a week in London. It was not entirely successful for Holst, who was never one to be lazy. Um, his nerves worsened instead of getting better. Uh, he needed to be doing things. Um, although it was a year since his accident, he began to have violent pains in the back of his head. Even when the pain ceased, he could not bear anything touching his head, not even a hat or a pillow. Can you believe it? The man didn't wear hats. Oh, <laughs> no way. People don't wear hats anymore, do they? <laughs> 
Noise was torture for him. People talking, traffic, applause, he couldn't stand it. He had nightmares about making mistakes or about his creativity drying up. His, his doctor ordered him to give up all work for the rest of the year. Afterwards, he wasn't able to resume any regular teaching except for a very little at St. Paul's where he continued to teach for the rest of his life, just occasionally. Mm -hmm. So, Holst lived for nearly a year in a comfortable house in the middle of Taxet. Taxted. <laughs> uh, he was alone except for an ex-army boatman who became his cook, valet and guardian. He worked on his choral symphony and a new, a new opera called At uh, the Boar's Head, uh, based on the Falstaff scenes from Shakespeare's Henry IV. Uh, oh my gosh, that work is... It's not good writing. I mean, we love, we love Holst, we do, but... There's just, you can't take Shakespearean iambic pentameter and set it to notes without actually taking five hours. And it's just, you have all of these, just way too many words at once. Yeah. It just keeps on going. It's really hard to hold people's interest. But, it, you know, it, it, it sounds fine, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's just, it gets kind of grating after a while. Yeah. So, by the end of 1925, Holst was well enough to return to London, and almost immediately he was plunged into rehearsal for At the Boar's Head. Uh, but the opera was not well received. Audience felt cheated because as soon as they began to get hold of a tune, it was snatched away from them and woven into a restlessly changing pattern uh, that baffled the ear. And the performers could not cope with the music's complexities and their acting. So people didn't like... like. It was a very complex word. Mm -hmm. I mean, people didn't really seem to like it. But you, know, you can listen to it on Spotify. It's, uh, mm -hmm. There it is. At the Boar's Head is the name of it. Boar. B-O-A-R. Uh, then the choral symphony failed, too. Uh, listening, listeners found it too difficult to take any delight in the work. People listened to choral music for delight, not for sophistication. Everybody knows that. Uh, most critics savaged it, uh, complaining of dreary wastes of dullness and the chilly vas vacillations of its harmonies. Holst presents, uh, he, one of the critics uh, wrote, uh, Holst presents the melancholy spectacle of a continuous and unrelieved decline. Um, Quote unquote. Holst was unimpressed, but he was uh, worried when von Williams wrote to confess that he felt a cold admiration for it. Hmm. It should be noted, of course, that what seemed difficult for audiences in the 1920s is accepted much more easily today. <laughs> and modern recordings of Holst's works from this period now allow us to access them anew. And I, I think uh, with, with modern ears, a lot of people can have a much greater appreciation for Holst's music. Mm -hmm. In 1926, Holst was lecturing at Liverpool and Glasgow universities. He now had a beautiful home in Thaxted, but he only went there on, occasion, on occasional weekends. He was restless and seemed to have no desire for a fixed home. In London, he was happy enough going for solitary walks. He was not writing any large-scale works now. Uh, the Golden Goose was a light-hearted choral ballet, and uh, another choral ballet that he also wrote at this time is The Morning of the Year, um, which was a little more amb ambitious than The Golden Goose. These, these, these are all works that very few people are aware of. Mm -hmm. I mean, for, most, for the most part, people really only know the planets yeah. from Holst. Mm -hmm. He wrote a lot of music yeah. other than that, and it certainly has a beautiful life story. So in the spring of 1927, the citizens of Cheltenham organized a Holst festival. How nice. Two hours of music, which included a Somerset Rhapsody, which had not been performed in years, and, of course, the planets. Mm -hmm. Afterwards, as an antidote to so much honor and glory, he went off on a walking tour of Yorkshire. Uh, as we have seen, he was a prodigious walker. He must have walked over most of the counties of England in all seasons and in all weathers. He also covered appreciable tracts of Italy, France, Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, etc. Uh, he had explored Istanbul and Athens during his war service. 
When he visited Chichester in, uh, to discuss program details for the Whitsuntide festivals, he would walk over to Chichester, uh, Chichester from Midhurst and afterwards across the Downs to Pulborough before taking the train back to London. Uh, it was his habit to carry a train timetable in one pocket and a bus route uh, a detail guide in the other pocket. He was a traveler. Mm -hmm. He liked to go around. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so, in 1926, Halls was walking in Dorset. Um, as, a as a result, he was stimulated to commence work on Egdon Heath, dedicated to Thomas Hardy. Uh, he was inspired by the opening chapter of Hardy's, Re of Hardy's Return of the Native, and the desolate uh, stretch of country between Wool and Beer Ridges. Uh, the music was stark and austere, and at its London premiere in February of 1928, a little more than a month after Hardy's death, um, listeners were profoundly uncomfortable, but Holst, as usual, was unmoved. Uh, this time he knew it was the best thing he had ever written. <laughs> yeah, so in October 1927, uh, Holst received an invitation from Dr. George Bell, the Dean of Canterbury Cathedral, to write some music for a dramatic production called The Coming of Christ. In later years, when Dr. Bell had become Bishop of Chichester, the Whitsuntide festivals were held in his cathedral. In Chichester, they reached the glory of that first weekend in Thaxted. Uh, the other composition which occupied Holst in 1928 was the Moorside Suite for Brass Band. Uh, this became the test piece for the Brass Band competition at the Crystal Palace that year. The winners were Black Dyke Mills Band, and one of the cornet players in the band was a guy by the name of Harry Mortimer, a well-known figure at the time. So, in March of 1929, Holst returned uh, from an extended Italian holiday to travel to America again, where, um, where, was, where he was to be guest of honor at the 21st anniversary celebrations of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, he would be representing British art. Uh, he would also lecture at, uh, on the teaching of art at Yale. Uh, on returning home, he began composing again, this time on The Dream City the first of 12 uh, Humbert Wolf's songs. Uh, the Dream City spoke of a part of London which he knew and loved, uh, which was Kens Kensin Kensington, um, Richmond Hill, and uh, the, the, the Long Purples of the Thames. <laughs> so the Dream City was, uh, was sung by Dorothy Silk at his first public performance in Wigmore Hall, but Holst um, was, was not terribly uh, happy when he was sitting there. Uh, after the songs, uh, the concert ended with Schubert Quintet in C. The warmth of this music prompted the beginnings of Holst's thaw, but it was a long and painful process. Quoting Imogen Holst, um, his daughter, uh, as he listened to it, he realized what he had lost, not only in his music, but in his life. He could cling to his austerity. He could fill his days with kindliness and good humor. He could write music that was neither commonplace, unmeaning, nor tame. And he could grope after ideas that were colossal and mysterious, but he missed the warmth of the Schubert Quintet. Uh, so, in 1930, Hulse's contrapuntal and bitonal double concerto for two violins drew mixed reviews. One critic's verdict was, quote, highly intellectualized, unquote. Uh, while the Daily uh, Telegraph said it had outstanding qualities and moments of rare beauty. Uh, he received the gold medal uh, of the Royal Philharmonic Society after the first performance of the Double Concerto. Uh, in 1930 also, uh, Gustav Holst uh, wrote his 13th and final opera, uh, and this was another chamber opera called The Tale of the Wandering Scholar, uh, from the book uh, by medievalist uh, Helen Waddell. 
Um, also in that year uh, came the brilliant, the brilliant Hammersmith, which was a prelude and scherzo originally commissioned by the BBC uh, military band. Also, uh, the Coral Fantasia drew dire press notices uh, when it was premiered in uh, Glocus, Gloucester. 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 <laughs> uh, it's an English film. Yeah. <laughs> Gloucester. Uh, um, at the 1931's Three Choirs Festival, but Vaughn Williams was moved, moved by it. <laughs> so Holst was invited to lecture in composition at Harvard University, uh, which is a rather old university in the United States, mm -hmm. uh, for those who don't know. Uh, Harvard, uh, so he was there for the first six months of 1932. So once in America, he undertook a grueling program of conducting and lecturing, including a talk on Haydn, uh, one of his favorite composers, at the Library of Congress in Washington. But immediately afterwards, he was hospitalized with hemorrhaging gastritis caused by a duodenal ulcer. Uh, really bad intestinal issues. Again, his body does not play nice. Back in England, he convalesced for much of the rest of 1932. He had to consume vast quantities of milk, and his walking became, as he described it, even more middle-aged than before. Uh, so... That's not a very common um, treatment, uh, milk. 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 What they, <laughs> what they apparently wanted him to do. Yeah. So, however, the next year Holes uh, was at work again, uh, this time for Lionel Tertis. Uh, he composed the lyric movement um, for viola and orchestra. And uh, for the students of St. Paul, he wrote the book Green Suite. Sorry, the Brook Green Suite. Uh, in both works, he was returning to the ease and spontaneity uh, that had so often deserted him during the previous 10 years. Uh, at the end of 1933, he entered a nursing home and was given the choice of a minor operation in a restricted life afterwards or a major operation and the freedom to do what he liked. He chose the latter. Uh, the operation was planned uh, for early of, of that spring, 1933. So during the early months of 34, Holst listened to broadcasts of his music and scored the scherzo he began the previous year. It was to be part of a symphony, but there was no time left for the other movements. Uh, the operation in May was successful, but his heart was uh, unequal to the strain. He died only two, year, uh, two days later, on the 25th of May, 1934. Mm -hmm. uh, so Elgar had died on February 24th, and, and Delius was to pass away on June 10th of that year. Not that they planned it, I mean, that's what just really died. Uh, Holst's ashes were buried in the cathedral at Chichester. A few feet away from the grave was the memorial to Wailks. Wailks is also in Chichester, who had been the organist of that cathedral from, uh, for a while back, I'll say about 300 years before Holst was buried there. Mm -hmm. uh, just sort of amazing how long things tend to last. Yeah. But yeah, so he died in 34. But he was born in uh, 1874, I think, and that's... Um, that's an important year because that's also when Charles Ives was born and mm -hmm. Arnold Schoenberg. Mm -hmm. That's a big year. Mm -hmm. um, so now we move into the piece that we're going to talk about today, which is of course The Planets, which was written between 18, 1914 and 1916, and this is um, Holst's Opus 32. During the 1910s, Holst was undoubted, undoubtedly going through a period similar to um, a midlife crisis. Uh, his first large-scale work, an opera called Sita, uh, failed to win a cash prize at the Recording Composition Competition, and his other large works for, um, of the time, notably The Cloud Messenger and Benny Mora, were premiered without great success, like we talked about before. 
In March of 1913, Holtz received an anonymous gift which enabled him to travel to Spain uh, with uh, Cliff for Bax, which we talked about before, uh, the brother of the composer Arnold Bax, like you said. Um, and Cliff for Bax was an astrologer, and he and Holtz became good friends, uh, with Bax introducing him to the concept of astrology. <laughs> So it was uh, probably due to this friendship that Holst began to rediscover his uh, childhood intrigue with theosophy. Uh, he had a book in his library called The Art of Synthesis by Alan Leo. Uh, Leo, him, Leo himself was uh, an astrologer and a theosophist who published various books on astrology. However, if you look at The Art of Synthesis, each chapter is labeled with a heading, often, precursor, uh, often a precursor to how the planets was constructed. Uh, Alan Leo divided his books, a book into chapters based on each planet and described the astrological characteristics of them. In fact, Neptune the Mystic is given the same title in both the book and the suite. Uh, Holst may have been introduced to Leo by George Mead, or G.R.S. Mead, a Sanskrit scholar and fellow member, along with Holst of the Royal Asiatic Society. Mead and Leo were friends. Uh, in fact, G.R.S. Mead was the president-elect of the Theosophical Society for a long time until he... He, uh, he left because he was upset with, um, with his predecessor. Uh, no, with, uh, with another person there, a guy. Um, well, he was just caught being inappropriate with boys. Mm. He didn't want anything to do with that. In any case, that's why he left Theosophical Society or refused to become its president. But in any case, that's a bit of trivia yeah. about G.R.S. Mead. Holsts mm -hmm. <laughs> and Leo's friends. Yeah, so Hall calls, uh, call, call this piece a series of mood pictures. Um, in actuality, this helps lead into other in influences for this work. Before Holst started to compose the planets, both Schoenberg and Stravinsky made trips to England and uh, caused quite a stir. Schoenberg came to England and conducted his five orchestral pieces, which were the Opus 19. Uh, Holst must have gone to this concert and been impressed, for Holst labeled the uh, preliminary sketches of the planets, uh, quote, seven orchestral pieces, unquote. Around the time, uh, Stravinsky came to England and conducted his uh, his uh, Sac du Printemps, of course, the Rite of Spring. Uh, and Holst must have noticed this unconventional way to use the orchestra, uh, because in the first movement, which is Mars, uh, the the blatant dissonance and unconventional meter seems to be riddled with the influence of Stravinsky. Oh, it's very obvious. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so Gustav Holst seemed to consider the planets a progression of life. Mars perhaps serves as a rocky and tormenting beginning. In fact, some have called this movement the most devastating piece of music ever written, which is an adorable way of putting it. I, I'd say there are much more devastating pieces of music written than that. Yeah. Oh, you know, not to point any fingers at any living choral composers. Um, <laughs> Uh, Venus seems to provide an answer to Mars. Uh, its title as the bringer of peace helps aid that claim. Mercury can be thought of as the messenger between our world and the other worlds. Perhaps Jupiter represents the prime of life, even with the overplayed central melody, uh, which was later arranged to the words of I vow to thee, my country. I vow to thee, my country. Mm -hmm. um, Saturn can be viewed as indicative of Holst's later mature style, and indeed it is recorded that Holst preferred this movement to all others in the suite. Um, uh, though Saturn, I mean, through Saturn it can be said that old age is not always peaceful and happy. Uh, the movement may display the ongoing struggle for life against the odd supernatural forces. This notion may, uh, may be somewhat outlandish, but the music seems to lend credence to this. The Saturn is followed by Uranus, the magician. Uh, a quirky scherzo displaying a robust musical climax before the tranquility of the female choir and the Neptune enchants, enchants the audience. And that is new, 
produced the sound system. Mm -hmm. So the piece displays that Holz was in touch with his musical contemporaries. Uh, there are always ideas borrowed from Schoenberg, Stravinsky and Debussy. Um, in Debussy it would be the quality of Neptune, uh, which resembles uh, earlier Debussy piano music. Holz never wrote another piece like The Planets Again. He, hated its pop he actually hated its popularity. Uh, when people would ask uh, for his autograph, he gave them a type sheet of paper that stated that he didn't give out his autographs like you said before. Um, the public uh, seemed to demand of him more music like the planets and his later music seemed to disappoint them. In fact, after writing the piece, he swore off his belief in astrology, uh, though until the end of his life he cast his friends horoscopes. Um, how ironic that the piece that made him his name famous throughout the world brought him the least joy in the end. That's quite common, you know. If you mm -hmm. have a, a piece that people really like and you just go, well, it's not my best work, but okay. Yes, yeah. and also, also because you have to listen to it so much, right? I mean, he probably everywhere he went, he's listening to this piece over and over and over again. So, uh, the Planets was first performed in a private concert in 1918 with Adrian Boult, uh, conducting as a gift from Henry Balfour Gardner, who was also responsible for the premieres of Holst's two Eastern pictures and The Cloud Messenger. The first complete performance of the piece was under Albert Coates in Queens Hall in 1920. Mm -hmm. He completed Mars, the opening movement, in a rural cottage during August of 1914. Uh, he composed the remaining six movements over the next two years. One reason for his not completing it more quickly was his fear that no orchestra, that no orchestra big enough uh, to handle his lavish demands would be available during wartime. Um, Sir Adrian Bolt conducted the first performance given uh, before an invited audience, uh, sorry, uh, Sir Adrian Walt conducted the first performance uh, given before an invited audience of 300 people uh, in London of 1918, in September 29 of 1918. So let's talk more about the, uh, the piece itself. Let's actually look at the movement. So the first movement is uh, called Mars, the Bringer of War. Uh, these again are not planets specifically in relation mm -hmm. to actual planets, these are mm -hmm. astrological uh, figures. Mm -hmm. So Mars, the bringer of war, it hammers a fearsome, relentlessly jagged 5-4 rhythm. The whole thing is in 5-4 time. Mm -hmm. It's just a, a little bit longer than your normal western 4-4 rhythm. Just one extra beat. Uh, yeah. This movement portrays a world in the grip of cold, implacable brutality. Uh, that's what he's going for. So, so that we have brass and percussion holding center stage throughout. Uh, pounds out harsh blocks of sound over an implacable motor-like uh, rhythmic tread. Uh, there are these long phrases uh, that contrast glittering martial fanfares, which sort of have this horror and glory uh, idea uh, uh, coming in and out of each other. Uh, so in the middle, an apparent crushed war uh, remorselessly rises again, amplified like the apprentice's enchanted broom sporting an X certificate. Uh, <laughs> After a, a grindingly dissonant climax, the death machine pauses desolately for a moment, only to power recklessly ahead to a devastating conclusion. Uh, just like the real thing, Holst's horrific vision of war seems not to know how or when to end. Can you imagine this might have had something to do with the Great War? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, you know, was, was coming, right? It was mm -hmm. uh, shortly to come, this, mm -hmm. this fear that he had of yeah. the oncoming onslaught. Mm -hmm. So the second moment, which is uh, Venus, the bringer of peace, uh, this, this moment inhabits a tranquil, or Venus inhabits a tranquil garden uh, 
engendered by the glowing, rounded contours of two alternating subjects in complete contrast to Mars. Um, the first, the first ascends on horn, uh, reflected by descending woodman chords, and becoming an undulating procession. Uh, sinuous cellos preface uh, the second, um, appearing on intimate solo violin. Um, uh, decibels are limited to blissful wellings, uh, the scene finally fading in a, in a, a tinkling of Arcadian fountains. Uh, so, uh, uh, Venus is splendors, has lovely eyes, and is the inspirer of poets. Um, it is tempting to apply our contemporary men are from Mars and women are from Venus psychology to these first two movements, uh, but the composer never made uh, such gender allusions. Sexists. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the intention was, according to Hall's daughter and biographer Imogen, uh, simply to, quote, bring the, the, the right answer to Mars, unquote. Uh, the, this, the, the bringer of peace, uh, therefore exists in a serene land that cannot be dis disturbed. Steady pulses uh, freely undulate their way through the, this tender scene with light orchestration and a gentle sense of rubato. Uh, more familiar uh, romantic progressions are abound including a Tristan-esque Tristan climax. And then right after that we have two contrasted, uh, contrasting scarcels that follow. The first of which is called Mercury, the winged messenger. Uh, I have to do it with that voice. Uh, so this this particular one has uh, the orchestra just having these these really fast scurrying figurations everywhere. The central section is this succession of eleven repetitions of a counter subject uh, subject, which is um, scored in such a way that it's it's just sort of going everywhere. This Mercury doesn't just flit on scented zephyrs, he stirs storm clouds in his wake. Uh, I love that word, zephyrs. It's, you never hear that except for in Florida if you need water. That's the water down zephyr goes. Anyway, uh, <laughs> finally these themes intertwine before he pops off into the blue. Uh, Holst's, Holst associated this character with the process of human thought. Uh, Something that something of that swift quicksilver process may be heard in the uh, chuckling woodwinds. Uh, you have these strings that are you know, sort of going really quickly, and the Celeste mm -hmm. is tinkling in the back there. Mm -hmm. um, Mercury, uh, of course, is the Roman word for Hermes. Just the, the hermetical ideas uh, everywhere of um, of human thought, human reason being a big idea here of communication. So uh, Mercury is witty, fond of jokes, and is learned. Uh, this is Holst's scherzo, uh, portraying uh, a trickster with a playful, childlike ease of movement. It's very, uh, very easy to get through from one thing to the next. So uh, we have all of these virtuosic uh, scalar runs that uh, just go from one instrument to the next, which suggests, as Richard Green has pointed out, quote, the nimbleness of the thought processes of a genius too quick to follow. Unquote. A lot of people have, have given lots of nice, long, uh, unused adjectives to describe this thing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the next movement, movement number four, is uh, Jupiter, the bringer of jollity. Uh, and and this this movement, on the other hand, has both uh, jovial feet planted firmly on the ground uh, and uh, robustly scored uh, Falstaffian tunes uh, reflecting Hall's study of English folk dance uh, drive the opening and closing sections. In their central section, uh, the strings introduce a stately hymn-like theme evoking a more ceremonial type of rejoicing. 
The Moment's Heart harbors uh, this, this grandiose, grandiose tune, uh, which was intended to portray Jupiter taking his ease, and apparently Hoss was not thrilled to see this hijacked for a patriotic hymn. Uh, and uh, and this, this tune recalls briefly during, is recalled briefly during the, the, the coda. So apparently he didn't like the fact that it was used as, a, as the hymn later on. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so Jupiter was um, so a description for this. Jupiter has large limbs and possesses a spirit which gives faith and abundant hope. Uh, this moment uh, is the most clearly maestoso or majestic of the moments, uh, presenting several themes, each one related to the last, uh, that draw on the folk song style cultivated by f uh, fellow composers like Elgar, Delius, and Von Williams. Um, uh, the lack of transitional material or development portrays, portrays a character without complexity or, th or thought, simply wrapped up in the noble uh, pageantry of the movement. I think we can all appreciate uh, getting wrapped up in the noble pageantry. <laughs> Let's let life stand still for a little while. Okay, so number five <laughs> is uh, Saturn, the bringer of old age. So Saturn was Holst's favorite movement, on account of Holst being an old soul, I guess. It communicates the greatest emotional depth in the suite. Uh, this miniature tone poem sets forth his views on the stages of human life, the uncertain beginning, uh, the struggles and heartbreaks of maturation, and finally, gratifyingly, the emergence in late years of wisdom with its serene acceptance of imperfection and mortality. Uh, so the first part is shown through the restless activity over slowly alternating chords and the flutes and the harps. Uh, the middle part, the struggles and heartbreaks of maturation, we have the solemn march building slowly to a harsh climax. And then the last bit, uh, we just have um, we have a, an orchestral expression of, uh, of this uh, of a piece of wisdom. When a tune does surface, it is a dirge urging the creaking aged toward the gates of Hades. Uh, following the awful climax, uh, this depressing image becomes transfigured to portray the other side of the coin of old age, autumnal serenity. So we have that uh, impression in there. So another description of this uh, writes this, Saturn is lazy, lame, and has coarse hair. Now, those who can't hear hair in music, give it time, eventually you'll be able to tell the hair in the music you hear. Uh, the undulating, disorienting chords which open the bringer of old age portray the ticking of a clock, presenting a kind of, kind of a meditation on the disease, death, and suffering that are an uh, inevitable part of life. The bases struggle in their lowest registers, so well, that's not very nice, um, to present a theme, uh, but it is frail and limited. The powerful transformation that follows suggests the elderly's dignified, patient wisdom. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the fifth movement, and a lot yeah. of people have given uh, colorful commentary on it. Yeah. So, uh, movement number six, which is Uranus, the magician, casts a four-note spell. Uh, Brazen ancestor uh, of the ferocious motto of Von Williams' Fourth Symphony, uh, and this this spell that's that's cast by the brass uh, is also reminiscent to the sorcerer's apprentice, um, uh, which the bassoons are the first to respond. The main tune develops from relaxing bassoons to a brilliant climax, uh, thence to a march-like melody, which is whipped whipped up uh, still more brilliantly. Holst puts his huge ensemble through many spectacular paces, dramatic and grotesquely humorous alike. Uh, a mad, merry dance tune repeatedly threatens to uh, carry out of control, uh, as the timpani and low brass uh, cavort like spell, spellbound elephants. 
the four the four note motif uh, active throughout echoes alone in the spellbinding coda. A final incantation leads to the hush uh, on settled close. So a description for this movement is uh, Uranus is eccentric, uh, possessing a nervous organized temperament quite out of the common. Uh, the music uh, for the magician suggests the image of a bumbling wizard. Like we said, reminiscence of this composition, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which of course uh, written by Paul Lucas earlier. Uh, this movement, providing a bit, a bit of comic relief to the suite, literally disappears as in a puff of smoke. And the Adagio Coda has a foreboding mystery, suggesting that the wizard ha had more serious intentions. <laughs> so, this brings us to the seventh movement. Uh, Neptune, the mystic. Seven, of course, lovely number. Uh, for astrologers. Uh, the suite concludes with the, the diaphanous disembodied meditations of Neptune, uh, the mystic. So this movement is virtually devoid of melody and rhythm, uh, a bare phrase like uh, a refrigerated mutation of Uranus's motive is merely a frame supporting the ethereal harmony and icily glistening colors. Um, uh, set once again in the unsettling realm of five beats to the bar, not so unsettling about 5-4 anyway. It's just a happy little fight for time. Uh, they arrive as if having traveled across vast distances of outer and inner space. In this sterilized atmosphere, you, you imagine voices. Uh, then in the emerging second part, you gradually become aware that there are voices. But what voices? Midway through, the ethereal sound of a wordless female chorus floats, and f floats in from offstage. Uh, a chilling, remote siren song dissipates the orchestral texture only until that eternal chorus remains, beckoning as it recedes into the infinite unknown. In the final bars, the orchestra falls silent and the voices echo over and over until they fade into silent infinity. You have to love the, <laughs> the way this is phrased. Mm -hmm. Another description here has uh, Neptune, a psychic, lives purely sensing vibrations uh, that rarely come to ordinary human beings. It has been suggested that the mystic was, for Holst, a musical rep representation of a kind of nirvana for which he always strived. The texture of the music contains a provocative combination of a static surface with intense activity beneath. The influence of Schoenberg's five pieces for orchestra, Opus 16, can be felt in the use of Klangfarbe melody, which just means sound color melody, in which each note of a melody is played by a different instrument. Uh, female, female voices appear, come to rest on two repeating chords, and fade into the infinite. And people are always fading into infinity, no matter <laughs> who's describing this thing. Uh, so that's the seventh movement in a nutshell. So we have seven delightful little deals here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's it's a yeah, it's a pretty cool piece. I've, I've played it once a long time ago, um, and that was I really liked the last movement, because with the offstage choir, that gives it a really cool quality. That is like almost unexpected. You don't know where it's coming from. It's really cool. A really cool effect there at the end. Feel the air from a distant planet. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a Schoenberg, second string quartet. It's the fourth movement, I think. Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else, Andrew? That's all I got. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Symphony Podcast. Of course, you can email us at symphonypodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions. You can, of course, find us on YouTube uh, with our, our annotated uh, videos. Um, or you can, of course, listen to us on iTunes. Um, you can find us there just by simply looking up Symphony Podcast. We are the first search you can find. Um, and, well, uh, until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. <laughs> Yay! Yay!